All right, we're recording. So um, I'm just gonna sort of count to 10 in my head and then we'll start, okay? Cool. Hello, and welcome to the Health Trip Podcast with me, Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach from downtown Chicago, and I'm also the founder of Jill Foos Wellness, a private concierge health coaching business where I work with individuals, groups, and corporations, deep diving into helping folks discover their own unique health equation to optimize their wellness. Join me and my guests as we venture down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms, perusing new innovative therapies, modalities, and protocols while living our best life. On today's podcast, I welcome Dr. Stephen Hussey. Dr. Stephen Hussey is a chiropractic and functional medicine practitioner. He attained both his doctorate of chiropractic and master's in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western States in Portland, Oregon. He is a health coach, speaker, and the author of two books on health, The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health and Understanding the Heart, Uncommon Insights into Our Most Commonly Diseased Organ. In addition to chiropractic, Dr. Hussey focuses on metabolic health and guides patients and clients from around the world back to health by using the latest research and health attaining strategies. In his downtime, he likes to be outdoors, playing sports, reading, writing, and spending time with his wife and their pets. Welcome, Dr. Hussey. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to deep dive into heart health. Uh, But before we start, I do want to just do a little medical disclaimer here that we are not medical doctors and we are not your primary care physicians. So all of this information is purely for informational and educational purposes. And hopefully you'll be able to walk away from this podcast with some nuggets to take back to your own primary care physician and discuss if they resonate with you. Uh, Today's podcast is all about the heart, heart health, cholesterol, saturated fat, nutrition, debunking old medical paradigms that most of our primary care physicians are still touting as medical truths leading to many confused folks out there, including myself. Back in the 80s, my father had his first cardiac event. He lived in the typical American lifestyle, smoked a pack of ciggies a day, didn't exercise, didn't manage his stress, drank alcohol, and managed his heart issues with lots of pharmaceuticals, including blood pressure meds, statins, and antidepressants. The one thing he got right was eating lots of animal meats, most likely a T-bone steak is what I recall. Um, But the doctors took away his red meat, they took away his salt, and they took away his saturated fats, and he quickly deteriorated, ended up having a massive heart attack and and passed away. Uh, I'm sure that that story is uh, a common story throughout the globe. Page 13 of Dr. Hussey's book, Understanding the Heart, which I just read all weekend, it was fascinating to me. There's a quote that goes like this. Western medicine is a, is great for an emergency. It will save your life in times of life-threatening infection, traumas, and general medical emergency, but it's proving to be terrible for preventing and fighting chronic disease. And with that, we're going to start deep diving into heart health. Anything you want to add to that opening, Dr. Hussey? I mean, just to reiterate, you know, it's, it, Western medicine has come a very long way as far as what it can do in an emergency and it can save your life. But if you look at the statistics on 
um, chronic disease, uh, especially in, you know, developed countries, westernized countries, uh, they're just skyrocketing and they keep going up. So clearly, you know, our healthcare system, which is extremely, extremely expensive, uh, is, is not working. And you'd think for something we were spending that much money on, we would get better health outcomes, uh, but we're not. And so we have to kind of open our, our minds a little bit and explore and see what other options there may be for achieving health. Yeah, it was really interesting today. I was listening to a podcast earlier about bridging the gap between traditional medicine and functional medicine. Uh, you know, we're all practitioners. We all want to help people live healthy lives, but bridging that particular gap is something that I think our entire um, country and world really needs to work on. But that that's another podcast right there. <laughs> so yeah. what what led you into being so intrigued by heart health? Um, well, I guess like you know, many practitioners in uh, in the functional medicine or just you know achieving health space um, is my own health journey. You know, my own health struggles, um, and so yeah, I you know when I was a kid, I had lots of inflammatory conditions um, starting from the age of two. Um, my father recognized that I was uh, having symptoms of asthma, just like he had, um, and so he could recognize that pretty quick. And, you know, from there it was, it was all kinds of things like uh, allergies. And uh, I used to break out in chronic hives all over my body, just from some allergic reaction to something. Um, I had irritable bowel syndrome, uh, lots of inflammation going on. Um, and ultimately ended up with autoimmune type one diabetes, where my body, there was so much inflammation in my body, it got confused, attacked some cells in my pancreas. And now I no longer make insulin, uh, which makes me type one diabetic, um, very different than type two diabetic. Uh, and that happened at the age of nine. And so, you know, from that time, my parents and I were kind of, you know, just thrown into this Western medical system. It was all we knew what to do. And they, you know, they were helpful, I guess, at, at helping me manage the conditions, but never really gave me answers as to why I had all these inflammatory things. Um, and, and in the case of type one diabetes, never really gave me, uh, or I guess enlightened me on the best way to, to manage it uh, because they didn't know. The best way to manage it. They knew one way to manage it and that's what they taught me. Um, and so, you know, so my entire life since I was nine years old has been a lot of trial and error on, on what's going to work best uh, for, for my health and, and my conditions. And, you know, I'm happy to say that, you know, all those inflammatory conditions I once had are, are gone. Uh, and the, the type one diabetes is kind of collateral damage from, from that. And so, uh, you know, barring any stem cell type cure that I will have that the rest of my life. And so that, really predisposes me to heart disease, um, two to four times increased risk because of, you know, my blood sugars, no matter how hard I try, would never be the same or as uh, good as someone who is a, not a type one diabetic. Um, and so I have this increased risk. And so I've always, you know, throughout, you know, um, throughout my entire life really, but especially, you know, toward the end of college and, and my medical education and just my own independent research, I've been looking for how best I can, I can, um, mitigate the, this increased risk that I have. And so what was, what did you try in terms of your diet? Um, yeah. So, I mean, it started out, you know, it wasn't really until college that, uh, I started figuring out that, you know, the way I live my life had a direct impact on how, how I could manage, you know, these conditions and, and manage my blood sugars and things like that. Uh, and so I started figuring that out on my own. And at first it was just, you know, 
eat more whole foods, I guess, or, you know, just learning about the processed food industry. And I, and I had a good undergraduate program that taught me a lot about that stuff, but it was a little misguided because it was, it was run by one of my professors, um, like the chair of the department was, was very plant-based. Uh, and so that we got that message a lot in college. And so originally it was, it was, you know, whole foods, but it was more plant-based and, you know, I convinced myself that that was the way to go. And, you know, I started finding information that, you know, reinforced that idea um, and wasn't looking at the other side of things. Um, but, you know, eventually I realized that, you know, I was getting sick a lot. Uh, and so I, uh, and I, I was tired and blood sugars really weren't that much easier to control. I mean, it was about the same. Um, and so then I kind of moved into more of a paleo diet uh, and then eventually like a paleo low carb diet. And that's when things really, you know, I started seeing the huge differences that was when I went lower carb. Um, this whole time I've been whole foods, but for me personally, as a type one diabetic, lower carb was, was the game changer, uh, I think, uh, because it makes sense. You know, it, my body has trouble regulating blood sugars on its own. Um, so we would, you know, limit things that affect blood sugar the most, which is carbohydrates, uh, as far as acute, acutely, you know? And so, uh, so that was a, a huge thing there. And then, you know, I've uh, more recently did, you know, a carnivore diet, a, a totally animal foods diet. And um, that gave me some health benefits. Like it was the first time in my life I had absolutely zero gut issues. Um, but I've since gone off of that diet. Uh, I'm eating more plants again. And the gut issues have, you know, you know, they weren't that bad after I changed my diet before, but there were still some there. Um, but even since then, it's it, they've been they've been fine. So. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I've tried a lot of different things. Um, and I'll probably try more, uh, as I come across them, but, uh, but yeah, right now it's, it's pretty low carb kind of paleo-ish diet. Right. So you're eating animal based foods as well. You're definitely, continuing definitely. on. And yeah, I, I mean, I'd say like 85% of my diet is pretty, pretty much animal foods. And I had a very similar path. Um, when my father had his first cardiac event, I went pure vegan, never felt so bad in my entire life. I gained 15 pounds. My skin looked awful. I had no energy bloated, just crappy moods all the time. And then I slowly moved through paleo, keto, low carb, keto carnivore. And then I went carnivore for a year and a half. All my blood work looked great and I felt great. Um, and so now I'm back to eating mostly carnivore, about 95% and a little bit of plants. And I, the reason I'm stressing this animal-based nutrition is because we're going to dive into saturated fats mm -hmm. and cholesterol. And most doctors would tell us, most traditional doctors would tell us absolutely not zero saturated fats. Don't eat red meat. Um, they don't care if it's grass fed or not, just don't eat it. You want lean cuts of protein. So let's, let's just start talking about cholesterol. Explain to the listeners what cholesterol is what saturated fat is and how all of this, um, gets broken down in our body and sort of the path it takes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, first off the idea that cholesterol and saturated fat cause heart disease is, is, was kind of a misleading idea that came from some kind of flawed research in the fifties. Um, but at the time it, it kind of stuck and it was kind of became the conventional wisdom. Um, of, of, of what causes heart disease because Americans were looking for an answer at that time and someone gave them one and that was kind of what it was. And that was kind of before the research came out on, on, on these types of things. Um, 
but you know, yeah, like cholesterol, saturated fat, like 101. Um, it, so cholesterol is, is a kind of like waxy like substance that our body uses for a lot of things. And so animals use cholesterol. That's the type of fat that they use and, 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 uh, plants use phytosterol. And so, you know, you know, we're animals. And so we use cholesterol. That's what we need. And we can use phytosterol because people eat a lot of plant fats, um, and their body can use them to an extent, but they can cause some damage, but cholesterol is what animals are, are meant to use. So, um, when you, when you eat animal fat, um, it's, it's usually going to be of the saturated variety, even though there's, there's saturated, unsaturated, monounsaturated in, in all foods, you know, even like a blueberry has saturated fat in it. It's just very, very small amounts. I'm really um, glad you bring that up because people don't realize that all fats are in all food, just in different ratios. Exactly. Uh, and so, yeah, so even, a, even a steak has unsaturated fat in it. Right. Um, and, and that's, that's okay. Cause it's in the right ratios. The problem comes when we get the wrong ratios, which we can talk about, but when you eat animal, um, fats, we're getting lots of cholesterol. And so your body will absorb that. And the way it absorbs fats, uh, is a little bit different than it absorbs other things. It, it packages them in what are called chylomicrons, which are just these, the largest kind of think of them as like buses, uh, the largest bus that carries cholesterol around. Uh, and so that is transported through a different system, um, through the lymphatic system, and it comes out uh, into the, the bloodstream. And then uh, those are those kind of microns, you know, are, are metabolized, you know, in the liver, and they become what we call LDL and HDL and VLDL, all these different um, lipoproteins, uh, which is when you take a cholesterol panel, they're, they're made mainly measuring these lipoprotein numbers. And those lipoproteins have cholesterol stored in them. Um, so when you're, when you're taking those cholesterol numbers, you're not actually measuring cholesterol directly, um, in all the numbers. Um, only one of those numbers, the total cholesterol is actually measuring that. Um, but then there's, you know, this thinking that on this lipid panel, that higher amounts of say LDL, this lipoprotein is going to cause heart disease. Um, and, and higher amounts of the HDL, the quote unquote, good cholesterol is going to help you prevent heart disease and all those types of things. Um, and I would argue that there's no such thing as good or bad cholesterol or good or bad lipoproteins. It all, it all matters. I mean, you can, you can't take that panel out of context and tell if someone's at risk or not at risk. Um, but there's a reason that, well, first of all, cholesterol has to be packaged in these, in these lipoproteins. Uh, because it's, it's, um, it's fat soluble. Um, it's not water soluble. And so the blood is about half water. And so those um, cholesterol molecules could not get transported, could not move throughout the, the blood without a, a bus, you know, a, a something to transport it. And that's what the lipoproteins do. But which um, lipoprotein is responsible for shuttling all the cholesterol around? around? The LDL. Well, okay. the VLDL, then it becomes IDL, IDL, LDL, or IDL, and then LDL. So there's different different sizes, right? Um, and and that's just because as they as they give up cholesterol, they get smaller. Um, and so so they've labeled them, you know, different densities. LDL is low density lipoprotein, uh, and VLDL is very low density lipoprotein, and and HDL is high density lipoprotein. So. Um, so they're just based on how much, how dense they are, how packed they are full of cholesterol, they get different names because they're different sizes. Um, and so these things are going throughout the body, um, delivering cholesterol because that's very, very important to our bodies. Uh, it, it, 
um, it plays a role in a lot of different functions. So all of our sex hormones are made of cholesterol. If we didn't have enough cholesterol, we, we, we could have sexual dysfunction um, or imbalanced uh, sex hormones. Um, cholesterol is important for the making of vitamin D. People think, yeah, we get it from the sun and we do, but if we don't have cholesterol present, we're not going to make as much. Um, it's, it's very important for um, the uh, function of insulin receptors, which, you know, insulin uh, signaling is very, very important for um, many things in the body, but insulin resistance is one of the, um, you know, well-established risk factors for heart disease. And if we don't have enough cholesterol, we can, you know, um, get insulin resistance, which there's studies out there that show that taking statins and lowering cholesterol is actually creates type two diabetes, which is insulin resistance. Um, so that's interesting. Um, you know, cholesterol plays a role in cellular communication. Um, it plays a role in um, all the cell membranes of every cell. So that's why if we have, if we don't have enough cholesterol, then our, uh, and we're using plant uh, cholesterol or phytosterol instead of that, it can actually make the red blood cells hard um, and not flexible like they should be. Uh, and there's some studies that suggest that, you know, those, those hard red blood cells are not as good at moving through arteries and they can cause or predispose to stroke and things like that. So it's important we have enough cholesterol to build, you know, our cellular um, structure. Um, so there's all kinds of things that cholesterol is really important for. And then, you know, the question that obviously comes up with that is, yeah, that's great. Cholesterol, people use it for things or we use it for things, but what if it gets too high? Is that a problem? Um, and I would say right now, based on what I know from the research and everything is that no, uh, it's not in the context of other markers on your blood work panel. Um, and so you have to look at everything in context. And so we're looking at markers of inflammation, looking at markers of insulin resistance. And if those things are generally good, then higher cholesterol has actually been shown for people to, to have um, less heart disease and less rates of cancer and higher cognitive abilities and less infection, um, all kinds of things, um, at a lower all-cause mortality in general, um, the higher the cholesterol is. Um, and so I think that it, it's, we've, we've kind of uh, blamed this, this thing uh, that for heart disease. And I, and I think that, I think that it's a little bit short-sighted to think that you could, you could take one snapshot in time on a blood work panel um, and, and one biomarker in general, like a cholesterol panel, or just even just LDL cholesterol and assume that, you know, someone's risk for something because humans and all living things are very complex biological ecosystems. And to think that, you know, with, with literally hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of, of interactions going on at one time. And to think that you could take, you know, even just one aspect of the body, which is the blood, um, and look at something in that blood and look at one thing in it. And then assume that someone has a risk of something without figuring out anything else about, you know, the state of that person is really short-sighted. And I think a little bit arrogant, I'll say, um, of, of, uh, of, uh, medical research. Um, and so, so yeah, it, that's just one argument there. Um, and so that's kind of what cholesterol is, what cholesterol does and, and what, you know, LDL is. So, yeah. So a couple of things with that. Why are traditional doctors so against doing deeper dives into a lipid panel and inflammatory markers on blood work? You know, a lot of times I get a, a client and they'll show me some recent blood work and 
you know, half of the information is missing. It wasn't even taken. And, you know, what is it about traditional medicine that just doesn't want to look? Is it something that has to do with the insurance companies paying for that? Or are traditional medical doctors just not buying the story that cholesterol, that we need higher cholesterol in our bodies? Yeah. So there's a lot of different things that's keeping it this way. Um, and I'd say that, well, just a little history. So back in, um, you know, I think 1920s or so, um, John Rockefeller had all this money and had all this oil and he was looking for ways to use, he's just good, good businessman looking for ways to use that oil. And one of the ways he found to use it was that he could use it to help extract things out of um, certain plants and things to concentrate them and make pharmaceuticals. And so then what he did was he, he wanted to use those pharmaceuticals, these new products that he was making. So he went to the medical schools and said, I will fund your medical school. Uh, I will fund your journals. I'll fund your research, all this stuff. If you teach this pharmaceutical based, you know, um, um, way of doing medicine. Uh, and it's really interesting because if you look at medical textbooks before the 1920s, um, there was all these different, what we would call alter alternative therapies today, you know, and, but after that time, um, you know, it became this very pharmaceutical based way of doing medicine, practicing medicine. And so part of the reason that it's keeping that way is because when, when a medical student goes to medical school, that's what they're learning. They're learning this pharmaceutical way of doing medicine. Uh, and that's all they're learning. And so, you know, after that, it's, it really depends on the person. Is that person going to be depend on the doctor, I guess, you know, is it is that that doctor going to be open-minded and keep looking for different alternatives? Or are they going to think, you know, I spend all this time learning about the body. I know, I know it better than most people. And I was taught this, and this is what I'm going to do. Um, and then there's the aspect of, of, you know, this is the standard of care. If you don't do the standard of care, your license is at risk. You know, if you don't do the standard of care and something goes wrong with this patient, your license is at risk. Uh, and so there's that aspect of things. Um, but then there's also the aspect of things, you know, that, that when a medical student goes to medical school, they're, they're wide eyed and they want to heal the world and everything like that. And then, you know, the, I think, uh, a bit ridiculous rigors of medical school kind of takes that out of them. And by the time they get through with medical school and residency and all this stuff, they're just like, I just want to see patients and pay off my extremely large student debt. And, and this is what I'm going to do. Um, this is what re this is what insurance companies reimburse me for. This is what I'm going to prescribe. Uh, this is the way I'm going to practice medicine because it's going to make me the money that I worked really hard to earn, you know, um, and, and they think they deserve, you know? And so it's just, there's all these things that, cause I don't think that it's bad people. Uh, I think that it's a lot of good people stuck in a bad system uh, and a system that rewards um, a certain way of doing things. And, and, yeah. and it's rare, I think that you'll find, I mean, it's getting more common now. Um, but I think that it is still rare that you'll find a, a physician that has, you know, gone outside the status quo and, and started looking for answers. How, like, how can we treat these things more effectively? And most of the time when they do that, they realize that the pharmaceuticals are not the answer. The pharmaceuticals are really good at treating certain symptoms or getting a certain effect in the body, like lowering cholesterol, if that's indeed what we want to do. But what if it's not what we want to do, you know? Um, and, and, and they find that those are not the best ways to do things. Uh, and so, and so they, they start to branch out and they get different ideas and, 
And so, yeah, but there's, there's all these different things that are kind of holding medicine in, in that place right now. Yeah. And what I have found um, just on my podcast and, and in all of my uh, school for health coaching and talking to uh, practitioners and physicians is it usually takes a, you know, hitting bottom type of experience, whether it was with them themselves, a family member or a friend or a patient that had they where they have a light bulb moment thinking, okay, there has to just be a better way. And like your experience, you know, yeah. and so many others. And that's what uh, I believe functional medicine was born out of just people having these experiences and needing to find other ways, tired of taking, you know, all the pharmaceuticals and still not feeling optimized. And the whole point of living is to feel optimized. And, you know, we're only here once and let's make the best of it. Right. Exactly. And, and I think that, you know, lots of physicians started to realize that, Hey, this is the, this is what I'm being told is the best available treatment and it's not working. Yeah. You know, and, and people were, were getting sick and not getting better and they got frustrated with that. So they, they looked for other, for other, um, routes, you know? Yeah. So I have five kids and when they were little, they're all two years apart. And when they were little and I'd take them to any kind of doctor, they would always say to me, you know, mom, do you think you could wait in the car? I really don't want you, you know, talking to the doctor and like talking about your whole food thing and gluten and this and that. And I was like, I'm coming in. I promise I'll be a, a good mom. I won't say <laughs> anything, but actually the good mom was, is the mom who, who questions the, you know, layers of pharmaceuticals. They're, you know, giving your eight-year-old child who's, you know, clearly not doing well. Yeah. So I find that interesting, you know, when um, the game changer game changers documentary came out, I had so many of my clients and non-clients reaching out to me and asking me, you know, should I be going plant-based? What do you think? You know, maybe I need to stop eating all this animal-based food. And how important is it for people who are on their own health journey, trying to discover their own unique health equation to really understand and find out where their information is coming from? You know, is it from, is it propaganda? Is it from a group of vegan businesses who are trying to sell more product? Is it from um, a school who's being funded by vegan uh, corporations to promote a certain, like what you're saying, promote a certain medical theory? How important is that? Yeah, it's incredibly important to, to know, and it, and it, to know these things, know, know where the information is coming from, but also what type of information it is. Um, because there's a lot of tricks that are played. I mean, we live in a capitalist society, right? And so, you know, companies and people for the most part are just, you know, they're looking out for the bottom line. They're trying to make a living. Um, but sometimes it goes too far, you know, and some of these big companies like the pharmaceutical companies or the big agriculture companies, um, they can, they can start to put all the money they have into things that, that will in the long run, help them sell more products. Right. And so we really have to be conscious of, of all the techniques that they're using uh, to influence that information that we're getting. So what effect do these companies have on the media? Uh, What effect do these companies have on academic institutions and researchers? Um, And by effect, I mean, are they funding them uh, telling them, Hey, we want to get this result mess with their statistics enough so that the result looks good 
so we can market that and sell more, you know, and we can create this whole idea because it wasn't really like in the, in the beginning, it wasn't really like a, a vegan companies with this agenda or whatever it was, it was food companies with an agenda. Uh, so it was like the sugar industry and the grain industry, like, you know, the big cereal companies, I'm talking about Kellogg's and Nabisco and, and um, the seed oil companies, like they wanted, they wanted evidence that they're, um, that they could sell to the public showing that their products were better uh, than, than meat uh, or than saturated fat. And, you know, who knows if those original scientists who blamed meat and saturated fat on things were funded by, by them. But um, I know that the TH Chan School of Public Health at Harvard is heavily funded by the processed food industry. And so it's no, it's no um, surprise that lots of the, the data and the, the studies that come out of them or come out of that, that school of public health are, are pro, you know, plant-based pro things that will lead to more sales of those companies that they're funded by. It's just, it's no mistake. And so the, the, the funny thing is, is that like the TH Chan school of public health at Harvard is, is like the king of epidemiology studies, which epidemiology is, is a type of research that's it's on, it's the lowest form of research there is meaning that it's, it's the least valuable form of research. We can't really um, gain much from it. Um, but the reason that is because you see all these studies out there that say this is associated with that or like red meat highly associated with, with uh, you know, um, irritable bowel or something like that or, or Crohn's disease or things like that or, or bowel cancer or heart disease Bullet or cancer. whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so the word associated, when you see that word, you should think, huh, that's just an association that doesn't prove causation because they're trying to spin it off like it is causation, uh, but it's not that. And we have to be very wary of those types of studies because, you know, two things could be associated with each other, but there's, but there's no way you can prove that one caused the other. So it's like, I mean, the most simplistic and um, uh, kind of uh, uh, example I could give is if you're standing on the sidewalk and you see a traffic jam in front of you. Um, or the, and, and you also see that it's cloudy. Those clouds are associated with that traffic jam because they're happening at the same time. But no one would ever in their right mind say, yes, those clouds caused this traffic jam. Maybe that was the case. We don't know, but we couldn't prove that. Mm. Um, or the, or mm-hmm. did the traffic jam cause the clouds? I don't know. And the only way we would know that for sure is if we consistently created a traffic jam and saw if the cl- it got cloudy or consistently created clouds and saw that it consistently created a traffic jam. That's, we have to test that hypothesis. Um, Cause so epidemiology studies are very good for forming hypotheses and seeing what things are associated with each other, but then we have to test them with controlled trials and things to see if that was actually the case. And sadly, the vast majority of our nutritional recommendations, you know, the food guide pyramid and things like that are based on these types of studies. Um, and, and so it's, it's extremely flawed. Um, it, it, I guess to say it's extremely irresponsible to base any type of, um, recommendation, whether it's from an academic institution or from the government on those types of studies, um, because those, uh, they're, they're the lowest form of science and, and we can see what following those recommendations has given us. Uh, and it has given us, you know, as, as Americans that we're the sickest country in the world, uh, chronic disease is rising and rising, rising. Heart disease is still the number one um, cause of, of death in the world, um, but especially in America, even though 
red meat and saturated fat consumption has gone up and down um, or, or it stays pretty level while the uh, while the processed food consumption has risen. So I think that pretty much tells us what's going on. Yeah, I think one of the worst websites anybody could go to to find out information about heart disease is the American Heart Association. Yeah, I, I have uh, clients that go to it and constantly come back to me and say, well, there's this and there's this and, you know, it's not what you're saying. But here's one of the things they say. The American Heart Association warns against eating a high fat diet and using um, hormone replacement therapy post menopause. I want to talk about menopause, low estrogen and women's heart health because heart disease is the number one killer for women. I think it's a one out of every five women die from a cardiac event. Mm -hmm. And most of that is post menopause. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I, today I went to the American Heart Association. I saw that, and I'm always trying to get my middle-aged female clients to eat more fat and saturated fat. Mm -hmm. And they have a really hard time wrapping their head around it. You know, their fat causes fat to them. And so when I, when I see this information written on that website, it just infuriates me. Uh, so let's just talk about menopause and, and women's heart health for, for a minute. Yeah. Well, first of all, you mentioned that, you know, uh, people think that eating fat makes them fat, which is definitely yeah. be further from the truth. Right. Um, so think about it this way. When, when we restrict carbohydrates, not that carbohydrates are evil, but you know, when we restrict carbohydrates, especially processed food carbohydrates, and we eat more fat, um, whenever your body starts burning fatty acids, because it's forced to, when you remove those carbohydrates, it also starts making ketones. Uh, and ketones are very important uh, because they are a form of energy we can waste. If you're eating a bunch of carbohydrates, your body has no choice but to store them. Okay. Whereas if you're store body them is, as fat, store them as fat yep. and, and glycogen too. But you know, if there's too much right. of that, it goes straight into fat cells. Right. And so it, if we're burning fatty acids and making ketones, your body can waste ketones. So it doesn't have to store that energy it can waste them and it wastes them in the form of, you, know, you can pee it out, you'll sweat it out, you breathe it out. Um, and so, so think about that. Um, and then as far as, um, you know, women and heart health, yes, you know, after menopause. Um, so, so like before menopause, it seems that more men die of, of heart attacks and, and have heart disease. Um, and, but then after that, um, it, women catch up pretty quickly uh, and, and then surpass them. And so, the reason, one of the reasons I think that is, is because, you know, we talk about, or the conversation around heart disease is dominated by uh, cholesterol, saturated fat, uh, lipid panels, those types of things, diet in general. Um, and that's important. That's an important aspect of heart disease. But um, in my book, I try and shed light on the other causes of heart disease, because there are others. Uh, one being inflammation and oxidative stress, the other being an imbalance in our stress response, um, which means, you know, you know, more or less how stressed we are, but, you know, how our body deals with stresses, um, everyday stresses that we have. And so if we are able to adapt to those stresses and our body can have the proper reaction to them, um, then we are much more likely to, you know, lessen that burden of, of a stress response on our heart, which is, you know, which is the organ that seems to take the burden of our, our stress, which is why we say things like, I love you with all my heart. And we gave it all our heart. There's this emotional capacity or, or context yeah. to, to our heart. Um, 
But one of the best measures of how balanced our stress response is, is heart rate variability. Um, and so heart rate variability is, it's, it's the best marker we have um, of that balance. And interestingly, there are studies that have shown that the monthly cycle of a woman before menopause actually stimulates or increases heart rate variability. Um, and so it's like women have this advantage over men of, of balancing that autonomic nervous system and that stress response um, before menopause. But then once that monthly cycle goes away or stops, then it seems that women kind of catch up and they don't, they're not getting that, um, that the benefit of that monthly cycle that, that stimulates or that increases heart rate variability. Uh, tell, the, tell the listeners what heart rate variability actually is. Yeah. So um, I, 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 I often describe it or using something else called respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is the same kind of measure mm-hmm. of heart rate variability, but it's just, it's, it's a good way for people to understand it. So if I was to you know, take my pulse, like on my neck right here, or like on my wrist or something, I just feel that. And, and I feel pretty closely and I take like a slow, deep breath in, um, my heart rate would quicken. And then if I take a slow breath out, you'd feel your heart rate slow a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so heart rate variability is, is the, the, you know, the, uh, the difference between, you know, how fast, or, you know, the, the time interval between how fast the heart is beating. Right? And so the heart rate variability, you want it to be bigger. Um, because as, uh, like when you breathe out, that stimulates what's called parasympathetic, which is the, you know, non-stress state of the, of the stress response. Rest and, and digest. Breathe, right. And when you breathe in, uh, you're stimulating sympathetic, which is that fight or flight. This is like, we're in a stressful situation. Let's do mm. something about it. Um, and they're just, you know, subtle stimulations, but that's, that's the, um, the power of, of breathing, uh, you know, will definitely, it stimulates those things. And so we want a high heart rate variability. Okay. So we want those heartbeats to be more spaced. Right. Um, and so, uh, that, that tells us that we, we are able to adapt to a stress response. We are more able to adapt, which if our heart rate variability is low, let's say it's here, then we have trouble, you know, adapting to a stressful situation and we could get stuck in this sympathetic response. We can get stuck in this stress state and then our bodies cannot adapt to those things. So heart rate variability, is just the measure of, you know, how, how well we're able to adapt to situations. Um, and it's, and it's done by measuring, um, you know, specific calculations when taking heart rate, but also, you know, breathing in and breathing out and, and the difference between how fast and how, um, and how slow it gets between, you know, each breath, that's the respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And those things are measuring the same thing, this balance in our stress response. Um, and so, like I said, the monthly cycle for women stimulates a heart rate variability, stimulates parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest, which helps create balance in, in the, uh, in the stress response. And so that's kind of a benefit as much as that may be uncomfortable to go through. I have no idea, you know, um, how that feels and how, how that is for women, but like, that's one benefit. You can see it as that, uh, that, that they're getting. Um, and then after menopause that goes away and women tend to catch up pretty quick, um, to men as far as, as far as heart attacks. So, um, it, it's pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting stuff. Do you think that hormone replacement therapy is beneficial to women then, um, knowing all of this information because the estrogen, you know, once your estrogen production goes down, it, it ain't starting up again, you know, so we need outside help. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I can't make a blanket statement on, on if it would be beneficial, um, for, for everyone or not beneficial for everyone. I think that's very individual. I mean, there are so many 
different factors within our modern world that are affecting hormones, um, yep. whether it's things like plastics um, and other, you know, phytoestrogens or not phytoestrogens, but just estrogenics and things like that, or whether it's just the, the war on cholesterol you know, that's messing with sex hormones. I mean, um, stress in general, you know, if we, if we have too much stress, then your body's going to steal more cholesterol yep. um, to make cortisol and not enough to make um, sex hormones. So there are so many different things. Um, and, and I would want to try and fix all those different things before I did hormone replacement. But at the end of the day, if, if that's the only thing that we can find that's going to help someone have a better quality of life, then, you know, as long as they understand the risks or benefits or whatever, yeah. then, then, you know, that's their decision. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to sit here and claim that no one should ever do it or that no one or right. that everyone should do it. You know, there's just a lot of things to explore. Uh, before you make those decisions. And unfortunately, in a Western medicine setting, those are those are things that are not talked about or not. Those are uh, treatment options that patients are not given uh, first. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I want to go back to um, ketones versus glucose and why the heart prefers to burn ketones for fuel and not glucose. So can we just sort of unpack heart health and um, being a glucose burner, which most people on the globe are versus going through a dietary change that will help your body adapt to burning fat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, there's, I've come across a lot of uh, research and, and just evidence in general that suggests that yes, the heart prefers to burn ketones and fatty acids. And, and it has mechanisms in place that I guess ensure that it has those things more than other tissues. But in general, I think the entire body, you know, per, would prefer um, to burn fatty acids and ketones. Um, and in reality, all of our tissues are burning all, all of them at the same time. Um, but, you know, so there's this thing called oxidative priority, which means that if, you're, if you have glucose present, your body is going to burn that first, um, no matter what. It has to get rid of that. Actually, if, if alcohol is there, that's, it's going to do that first. But then there's there's glucose, um, and then there's you know we'll skip exogenous ketones, and then there's proteins. But that's really um, that's really only you know reserved for like times of starvation when your body has to literally break down proteins to burn them because you're starving, like you're 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 yep. um, um, you're in starvation, and then after that it's fatty acids. Um, and ketones and things like that. So um, it, it has a stepwise process to get to the fatty acids. So we have to kind of restrict the carbohydrates mainly uh, to in order to get to the place where the body will will burn fatty acids and ketones. And that's that's generally what what happens in the entire body. But it's it's only in these modern times, or really since civilization became about, that we would have had opportunity to eat fats and carbohydrates at the same time. Um, and so most of the time before that, it was one or the other, you know, it was, it was either all in a meal, we were eating only fats for energy source or only carbohydrates. And it was only after we started farming and, you know, civilization that we were able to eat both at the same time. But, um, the really interesting thing about the heart though, is that there are studies, uh, that I found that show that even in the presence of glucose, the heart chooses to burn ketones and fatty acids. So it's like that oxidative priority situation doesn't apply almost um, because they, they, the heart is burning glucose and then they infuse the tissue with 
uh, a ketone. I think it was beta hydroxybutyrate. And then the heart chose to burn those more. It was still burning some glucose, but it chose to burn the, the, uh, the ketones, um, which is really interesting. Uh, and so it's almost like, and I think there are reasons for that. I think that, you know, when we're burning carbohydrates or glucose for fuel, primarily, we can have more oxidative stress. Um, we make less ATP, which is our, our energy source, like our energy currency, um, that our body uses. Uh, and so, so those, those things don't sound too good, you know, running on, running on glucose, more, more free radicals, more damage, more oxidative stress and less energy. Um, and so it's almost like the heart couldn't deal with that. And so like, it's, it's special in the sense that it can't deal with that as well as say a skeletal muscle could. Um, and so it has mechanisms in place that make sure that it primarily burns more fatty acids and ketones than other tissues so that nothing, you know, quote unquote bad happens as far as tissue damage and things. And when we talk about fatty acids and um, the heart preferring those, if someone is a vegan, is their heart working differently? Does it look different than someone who is eating animal-based fats? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd say that depends on what type of vegan diet they're eating. If they're eating a vegan diet, that's, you know, um, higher in carbohydrate, um, lots of starchy carbohydrates, or even, even processed food, like a processed food, uh, vegan diet, you know, that there's, are those out there. Um, then potentially they'd be really metabolically inflexible. Um, and that would, that would, you know, predispose the heart to having to burn more glucose than it would like to, um, uh, but you could do the same thing with the standard American diet that wasn't vegan. Uh, you know, it, it could be eating all these, um, you know, processed food, carbohydrates and, and vegetable oils and things like that, which the vegetable oils, I think are the real, um, uh, culprit, uh, the, the main driver, uh, but, uh, because those fatty acids are not fatty acids you want to be burning, um, in high amounts. Uh, and so, so yeah, hey, I, quickly, I, quickly name off the oils, the rancid seed oils that folks should absolutely stay away from. Yeah. So the, it's foods like canola oil, corn oil, soy oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, all those types of things. Um, I mean, generally I, I would prefer that our fats be solid at room temperature. Um, and people always say, well, what about olive oil? What about avocado oil? And, you know, yeah, those are, are probably better than the pure vegetable oils, but I would still prefer our fats to be solid room temperature. So butter, lard, ghee, tallow. beef tallow, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so the, the vegetable oils and you have to all, be careful All too. the things that people fear. Yeah, exactly. It, it, we've mm -hmm. got it completely backwards. Um, and, and you have to be careful too, because, you know, lots of foods that, you know, you could be eating, um, may have vegetable oils disguised in them. You know, the, the um, partially hydrogenated oil is on the back. People don't know that's a vegetable oil um, or, or it, it, it could be hidden in a lot of different ways. But generally, if you're not eating processed foods, you're avoiding that issue. Absolutely. Having to figure out, you know, what's in those things. But, um, right. but yeah, the vegetable oils are, are the, you know, they're low carb for sure, but they are a very processed food and not a food you want to be eating. And even if they say organic, still walk away, just walk yeah, away. I mean, I, I don't even go always, down the aisle. <laughs> it always shocks me that, you know, you go to like a whole foods and you go right. to like their prepared food section and it just says organic yep. expeller press canola oil. I'm just like, 
this is not a whole food, first of all, and right. it's, it's extremely bad for our metabolism. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about statins. So statins are the number one selling pharmaceutical in the United States or global? Is it both? Um, I don't know. Um, I think it's just United States. Okay. And they are prescribed to people whose cholesterol panels don't look so good when a traditional doctor most likely um, will see that their LDLs are off the charts high over the normal range. And that leads me to the question of how does a normal range of an LDL differ from an optimal range? Uh, yeah. So like normal, they'd say, you know, you know, between like hundred and 150. Um, I'm, and then like optimal will be under hundred. Uh, and so I'm, I'm over 300. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, last time I looked at, I think I was over 200. Um, yeah. 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 So anyways, yeah. So that's, that's the cookie cutter approach. You know, that's yeah. what's, that's, what's learned. And uh, in medical school, that's what they learn to do is like, you take a blood test, you see the results and you treat the blood test, right? You don't treat the person. Um, it doesn't matter what their opinion is. This is the recommendation. This is how you correct high cholesterol. Right. Here's the thing. High cholesterol is not a pathology. It is not a disease. Um, so we're not treating the disease. We're treating the blood work. We're treating, right? right? So that's not, um, first of all, that doesn't make sense. But uh, second of all, uh, the outcomes with statin trials are pretty abysmal, you know, and there's, there's research out there that shows or that suggests or concludes that um, the, the statins have a benefit. Uh, but when you look at it, the benefits are extremely negligible. Um, and if you really do look at the statistics, which this is how they mess with statistics and things, you know, if you look at them, um, you know, I, I can't remember the exact statistics in the studies I talk about in the book, but like one is like, um, if, if 63 people took a statin for a year, they prevent one heart attack. Right. And, and then the other one is like, if a hundred people took a statin for a year, you prevent one heart attack. These are the, what the results of the studies show, which are not good odds. You know, to me, it's like, why would I do something like that? Especially because there's all these side effects that we talked about. If you, if you limit the body's ability to make cholesterol, then you're going to have side effects. Um, yeah, because cholesterol I'm, I'm, is necessary. Yeah. On page 100 of your book. In fact, I'm going to open it up right now. I think I have it. Yep. One of my favorite pages of your book. Um, you have this little chart with all of these arrows and you talk about this stepped process um, in terms of make how our body makes cholesterol. I thought it was really cool that you put that in there. Not that I know what any of those things are, <laughs> right? But then you break down each point, each step in yeah. terms of, you know, if you don't get from step one to step two, here's all the things that are not happening in your body. If you don't get from step six to step seven, here's more things that aren't happening in your body. And all these things were, are meant to happen in your body. Cause by the way, our body is going to make cholesterol anyway. Yeah. Like the way a statin works is so like what your body does to take a fatty acid to make cholesterol. It's like this 20 step process. I listed like maybe eight or nine in, yeah. in that little chart, like of the main ones. Yeah. Um, but it's like this 20 step process and a statin inhibits the making of cholesterol at like step number two. Um, and so we're at the HMG CoA area or, or yeah. step there. And so by doing that, you're inhibiting 
all the other intermediates that are made in the process of making cholesterol. And guess what? The body uses those intermediates for other things as well. It's not like, it's not like cholesterol is the only goal of that whole process. And so if you're inhibiting, you know, step two, then all the intermediates you get at step three, four, five, six, seven, eight are not available for the body to use for other things. Like, for example, we talked about the insulin receptors. So Dolly call is one of those intermediates. If Dolly call is not available, then the insulin receptors can't stay healthy. And therefore we get insulin resistance, um, which is a much better indication or indicator that we're at risk for heart disease than uh, cholesterol. So we're inhibiting cholesterol, which, you know, you know, likely does not cause heart disease and we're creating something that does cause heart disease by taking these stats. Um, and so that's not to say that, you know, everyone should swear them off. It's, it's to say that you should have this conversation with your doctor and say, Hey, what am I really getting out of this? Um, and if they don't have a good answer, you know, maybe you should look elsewhere. Absolutely. In your opinion, who should take a statin? You know, I don't, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I'm hesitant to say no one, but that's what I want to say. Um, I, you know, it, I don't know. That's a tough question. Um, I think that there are what people call pleiotropic effects, uh, which are, you know, anti-inflammatory effects that statins seem to have. That's largely where the small benefit they have seems to come from. It's not the lowering of cholesterol, it's the anti-inflammatory effects, but hey, there are plenty of other ways I can have anti-inflammatory effects on my body than taking a drug that has the side effects of preventing cholesterol formation in your body. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, I mean, again, I don't want to give a blanket statement and say nobody, but I, I don't see the benefit. I don't see in, in the research or anecdotally. Um, I just, I don't see it. They're not helping prevent heart attacks clearly um, because heart attacks are growing. Heart disease is growing yeah. despite them being like the number one prescribed drug. Um, out there. So clearly there's, there's a, there's a disconnect. Yeah. One of the things you wrote about that I found really interesting because I am a huge fan of weight training. I always, um, try to encourage all of, especially my female clients, they think they're going to get like too big and too muscular. It's almost impossible for women. I mean, the women bodybuilders do a lot of amazing things to get their body in that condition. It's just not what most of us it's not going to happen to most of us. Right. Mm -hmm. But weight training is super important. And one of the points you made in that chart on page 100 was that if you don't get to a certain point and cholesterol is not made, you're not going to be able to repair muscle tissue or build muscle tissue. So now you've got, you know, a middle-aged man trying so hard to reverse his health, but his doctor puts him on a statin and now he goes to the gym, right? He's paying all this money for a private trainer. And guess what? He's going to feel fatigue, right? Because he doesn't have enough CoQ10 being made and he's not going to be building muscle tissue. Exactly. And, you it's know, maintenance, cycle. maintenance of muscle mass as we age is the number one predictor yes. of longevity. And so if we're inhibiting that process, then that that's dangerous. And I can't tell you, like, I'm a chiropractor and, you know, I do, um, you know, online health coaching. I work with metabolic health, but I have a very neuro, neuromuscular um, skeletal like practice. I treat, you know, pain. Um, and we treat the nervous system, chiropractors treat the nervous system, not pain, just so everybody knows, but we, we have patients that come in with pain and I can't tell you how many times people say, you know, I'm on pain. And I say, when did this start? And they say this time. And I said, did you do anything at that time? And they say, oh yeah, I was put on cholesterol medication. Yeah. And that's yeah. causing your muscle pain. 
you know, yeah. um, let's look at your spine and correct your spine, but Hey, talk to your doctor about that. Right. Um, because, you know, I can give you all the evidence that shows that cholesterol is not the evil thing that we've made it out to be. Um, and you go talk to your doctor about that and decide if you need to be on that drug or not. Yeah. And then, you know, if we want to circle back to the sex hormones, you need cholesterol to make sex hormones. So here you are at the gym with your private trainer that's costing you $150 an hour and you're fatigued, you can't build muscle. And now you have no stamina, you have no libido. So mm -hmm. what's the point of any of it? So a lot to think about before taking that step and, um, taking a statin and walking out of your doctor's office appointment, who's where he's telling you to take a statin leads to my next topic, which is optimal lifestyle for heart health. Um, we've talked about the animal-based diet versus a plant-based diet uh, in pretty good depth, but one, what are your favorite tips on heart health to dole out? Yeah. So I, in the book, I talk about like these three themes and we've mentioned them, you know, a few times is, is one is, is do things that create metabolic flexibility. Um, and that's largely going to be driven by diet. And, and th the number one thing to do there is eat a whole foods diet, right? Tell, tell my, the listeners what metabolic flexibility is. What's yeah. The it's, it's, it's basically training your metabolism in a way that it's, it's easily able to go back and forth between burning carbohydrates and fatty acids or glucose and fatty acids. Um, because in, in this day and age, most people are eating way too many processed carbohydrates. And so they've almost forgotten how to burn fatty acids. And you have to kind of teach your body to do that again by restricting carbohydrates and things like that. But, um, but you know, it, a whole foods diet in general is probably going to create metabolic flexibility. It does not have to be a full-blown ketogenic diet. Right. Um, it, and, um, but yeah, we want to eat in a way that creates metabolic flexibility. Um, that's number one. So whole foods and there's like, there's lots of different whole food diets out there. I think some are better than others. Um, but most of them are going to create metabolic flexibility. Um, so that's number one. Number two, is reduce inflammation and oxidative stress. And this is a big topic, um, but just like some, some heavy hitters are um, uh, toxins from our environment are gonna be huge contributors to oxidative stress and or inflammation. And so I tell people the, big, the five big areas are your food, make sure it's as clean as possible, your water, make sure it's clean as possible, your air, the air you can control, which is really just the right. air in your house. Um, and make sure that's clean as possible. Um, cosmetics, cleaning products, those five areas, make sure that you're not exposing yourself to things that um, are really damaging your body, get the cleanest versions possible um, in, that, in that area. But then also um, just be on the lookout for heavy metals. Um, so eating the right types of fish, if you have mercury fillings, try and get them replaced. Like there's just, there's so many exposures we could have to heavy metals and things. Um, but those are the things that it's going to drive, you know, oxidative stress and, and inflammation. Um, uh, the, the main drivers, I guess. And then the third thing is the thing I think that gets ignored a lot is, is achieve balance as best you can in your autonomic nervous system in your stress response. Um, and there's lots of different things, lots of different ways that we can do this. Uh, and so whether that's, you know, having meaningful, loving relationships, um, whether it's some type of meditation or prayer or whatever routine, gratitude routine, mm -hmm. um, spending time in nature. Um, so the, uh, sleeping, sleeping, yeah, proper sleep. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but there's lots of studies that show that 
the stress that creates poor health and the stress that that creates imbalance in our autonomic nervous system is is not just like your you know because you could have like this you know high performing ceo of this company right and he's thriving right and and that stress is is likely not um affecting him negatively it's the stress that we cannot control that makes us feel out of control that that um that that has a negative effect on us. So there's this interesting studies that show that the amount of stress people reported um, and what type of stress it was, was a direct correlation between the negative effects. So like I said, the, the high, high demand CEO um, reported tons and tons of stress, but it was stress they could control and it was no, no problem for their health. There was no poor health outcomes, but it was the employees in that company that reported um, not knowing how secure their job was um, or, mm-hmm. or not, um, uh, not having control over their, what they do in their job. You know, uh, those are the types of stresses that really had a negative impact on us. So when you look in your life and you try and mitigate stresses, focus on the ones that make you feel like you're out of control, um, or that you, or that, or makes you, makes it feels like your life is unpredictable or something like that. See if you can mitigate those somehow, because those are the big hitters. Um, so yeah, like I said, you can go on and on about all the different things you could do. You know, people do like these biohacking things like gargling or, or, or whatever that, that stimulate parasympathetic and help create balance. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, those are, you try and want to try and correct those three imbalances that happen in the body. And if anything you do is doing those, one of those three things, you're on the right track. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in health coaching, it's all about taking baby steps and reaching your goal and knowing your why, what is your why? Why do you want to get healthy? Was it bad blood work? Are you expecting a grandbaby and you want to be around for your family? You know, everyone has a different why. And I think that that is the first step to making these behavioral changes. Um, So before we end, I want to ask you one last question. What are your top three foods to eat for heart health? Um, I think, uh, well, (laughs) I probably beef heart. That's probably number one. Mm. Um, it's an animal food, so you get, and, but it's also an organ meat. So it's got plenty of nutrients and especially one specific to heart health, lots of CoQ10, um, which is, is great for that, but also good fats, uh, lots of B vitamins. So yeah. Um, then probably eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think eggs are just loaded with nutrients, uh, also good fats. And then maybe something like sardines. Yeah. Yeah. Some, something like those, which <laughs> two of those probably don't sound too appetizing. Well, for like, I was just going to say two but, of those people are already like, you know, stopping yeah. the podcast. <laughs> They're like, no yeah. way am I eating yeah. beef heart. But by the way, Carnivore Crisp is a company that made a, um, a beef heart chip. Have you ever mm-hmm. had their, their yeah, snacks? I have. Yeah. Oh my God. They're delicious. And you can dip them in, you know, whatever you like. I dip them in melted butter. <laughs> yeah. I will fat. say that if people like steak um, yeah. and they're, and they're worried about organ meats, heart yeah. is the one to start with. Um, it, it tastes, I think the most like, like regular steak. meat does. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you again for joining me on my podcast and breaking down heart health. It's such a confusing and scary topic to talk about. All of us know somebody that has had a cardiac event um, or somebody who's headed in that direction. And it's never too late to turn your health around and um, 
you're a health coach as well. So I am going to put in my show notes how to get in touch with Dr. Hussey if you have any questions, but absolutely pick up one of his two books. I, like I said, I read Understanding the Heart in less than 48 hours. I found it um, as someone who's not medically trained. It was really easy to understand. And you have a lot of studies in there, a lot of facts, and you back it up with a lot of uh, ways to support heart health. So thank you for writing that book. And, and thank you again for coming on. And um, I'll put all your information in there and link to you so all of my listeners can find you. And have a great night. Any final words you'd like to say? Uh, yeah, just thanks for having me on. I hope people you know, found benefit in what we talked about. And, and yeah, if people have questions, just reach out to me. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.